Our gracious Heavenly Father, you are inherently glorious and worthy of unending and unceasing praise. And Lord, we know that as we come to your word, whether it's the, in the preaching of your word or in the hearing of your word, we also worship you and we praise you in the way that we preach and impart your word and in the way that we hear and apply your word to our lives that we would be conformed into the image of Jesus. Help us to do that, Lord, even now. I pray that, Father, you would be glorified as we look at these very important realities for your church that we must all be praying about and considering carefully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. Or turn on your Bibles, I should say, for some of you, right? I notice, I notice some of you turning on your Bibles. Bob is nodding his head over there. And if you don't have a Bible available, there are Bibles right in front of you, okay? Make sure that you're following along in God's Word. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, I want to read. This is the Word of the living God. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife having children who believe not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. The title of our morning's message is Men of the Book. Men of the Book. Or we might also title this People of the Book. People of the Book. Because these are truths that will apply to each of us as we shall see. And we come now to the third and final category of elder qualifications from Titus chapter 1, we've seen, first of all, that the leader's relationship to his family is to be one that is above reproach, where he is devoted and faithful to his wife from the heart, where his children, he's shepherding them in such a way that they are obedient and under control. Secondly, we saw his relationship to himself, namely his character, and we saw the negative characteristics that he is to avoid in verse 7 and the positive ones that he is to pursue or be in verse 8. We'll look at the last one today. And now we want to see his relationship to the Word of God, his relationship to the Word. I don't know if you've picked up one of those little, I don't know, tracts um, uh, that we have here in our church in the foyer area called our Calvary Distinctives. And you've read those. We preached on them, I think, a year and a half ago or so. And the Calvary Distinctives are basically just um, some guiding principles or priorities for us as a church uh, that we want to um, uh, direct us uh, as we do ministry personally and as collectively as a congregation. We want those guiding principles to drive us. And at the top of that list, if you read that little card, is the distinctive that Calvary Bible Church is a Bible-centered church. Calvary Bible Church is a Bible-centered church, and we believe that. We, we say that because we believe that the answers to all of life and ministry are found in the Word of God. We believe that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. 
And we believe that the Bible, it's through the, the lenses, if you will, of the scriptures of the word of God, that we can have the right outlook on life and right perspective of life. I don't know about you, but this year as I've been reading through the Bible, one of the things that struck me again from the Old Testament, my Old Testament reading, um, was just being impressed with the literally hundreds of times that phrases such as God said or thus says the Lord appear over and over again to emphasize the importance of the word of God, that God speaks. He's a, a God who reveals himself to his creatures that we might glorify him. And then in the Gospels, Jesus, the Son of God, His life and ministry bear witness to the centrality of the Word of God in His own life. We see from the very beginning in, in Luke chapter 2, verse 41, Jesus in the temple, as His parents find Him after being not knowing where He was at, He's in the temple in Luke 2, 41, uh, discussing the Scriptures with the religious leaders in there. We see the fact that He is, uh, um, uh, when He was tempted by Satan, He uh, quoted the scriptures to Satan three different times because he knew the word of God. So he quoted scripture to Satan and standing firm by the word of God, not giving in to temptation. We see that for three and a half years, it was his custom to teach the word of God. In fact, in, in Mark chapter 1 verse 38, he says that he came for this purpose to preach the word of God. He teaches In the synagogues, he teaches the multitudes in informal settings and in, and in, and in uh, formal settings. He is in homes teaching the word of God. He is amongst his disciples, formally and informally, instructing them from the word of God. God's word was central in Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry. And later on, in Matthew chapter 28, in the Great Commission, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus passes on the baton upon his ascension to his disciples that they too are to bear witness concerning himself and preach the gospel. And they obey it. Because at Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, what do they do? They preach the gospel, and many people come to believe in the message of the gospel, turn from their sins and put their faith in Jesus, and the church is born. The church is born. And then what do we see throughout the book of Acts? We see in the book of Acts the growth of the church as the word of God is taught and preached from house to house, publicly, privately. There are these phrases in the, in the book of Acts, progress reports that were given, such as uh, Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, that says that the word of God kept increasing. The word of God kept on spreading. Acts chapter 12, verse 24, it says that the word of the Lord continued to grow. The word of the Lord continued to be multiplied. In the book of Acts, as the church is growing and expanding, the word of God is personified and, and powerful to impact lives. And then, of course, in the rest of the New Testament, what do we have but the formation and articulation of apostolic doctrine as passed on to us by Jesus and the apostles and the various biblical writers who were inspired by God to pen the very words of God in the New Testament. And they delivered to us the faith, for, faith once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude puts it. So that in the word of God, in the Bible, beloved, we have everything that God wants us to know in his self-revelation. The point in all of this is that God's word is central We don't apologize as a church for being Bible-centered in the midst of a, of, a, of a culture that continues to push away from God and away from the Word of God. 
We don't apologize for that. And we understand as a church that our greatest need is not to hear our own human wisdom or to hear man's opinions about this issue or that issue. Our greatest need is to know and obey the Word of God. Amen? The Word of God is our livelihood. The Word of God is our sustenance. Jesus said at the temptation of when Satan tempted him in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The word is our spiritual food. The word of God is what satisfies more than earthly delicacies. The word of God is our guide. The word of God is our livelihood. Without the word of God, we don't have any wisdom to impart to you, beloved. Even from this pulpit. Since the word of God is central then, It shouldn't surprise us that as Paul gives the final qualification for elders in chapter 1 and verse 9, this qualification is with reference to the elders' relationship to the Word of God. Because listen, elders don't lead the church or guide the church or direct the church on their own authority. Elders lead the church and shepherd the church by the authority of God's revealed Word, the Bible. If the primary responsibility of elders is to shepherd the church, then the primary way, listen to me, the primary way in which which an elder is to shepherd the church is by feeding the flock. By feeding the flock. And what does he use to feed the flock? But the spiritual food that the faithful shepherd is to give to them is the very word of God. The very word of God. This requires, beloved, that elders or aspiring elders be men of the book. Men of the book. If they are to be faithful to shepherding God's church, they are to be men of the book. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, the parallel passage of elder, overseer, pastor qualification says, 1 Timothy 3, 2, that elders are to be able to teach, able to teach, And I think Titus chapter 1 verse 9 really expands upon this qualification and what that means to be able to teach. And this morning I want us to see that it means two primary things. And then we're going to unpack these. That the shepherd is devoted to the word and that the shepherd is competent in the word. The shepherd is devoted to the word and the shepherd is competent in the word. And I want to remind us again why it is so important for us to be looking at these qualifications, including the fact that elders are to be men of the book. Five reasons. First of all, for us who are current elders, beginning with me as your pastor teacher, this is a type of man that I am to be. I am to be a man of the book as well. And not only that, but secondly, for you who aspire to the office of an overseer, who desire to be an elder, who maybe the Lord is moving in your heart in that direction, and you just don't know, and you're looking for confirmation of this, as you hear these things, this is the type of man that you must be now. No title that anybody gives you and puts on you is going to all of a sudden make you an elder and function this way. If a man is not an elder, when he's not an elder, he ought never to become an elder, right? As my pastor mentor said. In other words, there's nothing that we can label you with and give you a title or a role or a position, if you will, of elder 
that all of a sudden is going to transform you so that you function this way. This is the type of man that you must be. And really what we're doing when you are made an elder is we are only affirming that which you have been doing in your life already and the type of man that you are. So it's important for current elders, for aspiring elders. Thirdly, it's important for you as a congregation that you may be informed and know what it means to, that your church is established according to godly qualified leadership. So that these would be convictions and you would help us uphold these things in the church. Fourthly, that we as a congregation, beloved, may be praying for one another along these things. That you might be praying for your leaders currently and praying for the future of our church. That there may be men who surface and arise who are qualified godly leaders in the church for the glory of God and for your good. You need to be praying for that. And then fifth, for the sake of our testimony before the world. That we would put the gospel on display before a lost world as we're established as a church and as we have qualified, gifted leaders leading in their teaching and in their example. So that's why this is so important for us to be looking at. Okay, so we want to take these one by one. First of all, let's look at the shepherd's devotion to the word. The shepherd's devotion to the word. Look with me in verse 9. In addition to the positive qualities in verse 8 that he is to be, it says in verse 9 that he is to be one who is holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. And then a purpose clause, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and secondly to refute those who contradict In addition to the positive character traits that he is to be, the elder is to be a man who is holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. That verb, holding fast, is a strong verb. It is a present tense verb, which means continually clinging tightly and closely to something. It refers to uh, continually, characteristically, as the pattern of your life, holding a tight grip on something, in this case, the word of God. It speaks of singular devotion. It speaks of exclusive devotion, of holding on to the Word of God, of grasping it and not letting it go. Jesus used the same word or terminology when he said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, that no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. What was he emphasizing? That you cannot um, serve God and serve money. You must be undivided in your devotion. You must choose one or the other. One should be worthy of your affection and wholehearted devotion over the other. And in like manner, beloved, that's the idea here. The elder is to be continually choosing the word of God. The elder is to be one who is so devoted to the Word of God that it is his priority and his preoccupation. And he understands that he needs the Word of God for his own well-being and his own growth and sanctification, that it is his lifeblood. And that not only that, but the church needs him to be a man of the Word who is devoted to the Word for their own well-being and for their own sanctification and their own conformity to Jesus Christ. This is the man who is devoted to the Word of God. He clings to it. He's a man of the book. He's a man of the book. He exposes himself to the Bible. He reads the scriptures. Not only reads the scriptures, but he studies the scriptures. 
He meditates upon the scriptures. He saturates his mind in the scriptures. Even in the midst of his struggles or times of dry spells or whatever, he continues to pursue the Lord and hold on tightly to the word of God and the God revealed in the word. He knows the word of God. And listen, not only does he know the word of God, but he lives the word of God. If holding fast to the word and being devoted to the word means anything also, it means that he applies the word of God to his own life. He obeys the word of God. How how does the flock have an example of obedience if they can't see it in their shepherds? They must obey the word of God. We must obey the Bible. In verse 8, it talked about the fact that the elder is to be a lover of good. People who do good and good things, good works. He is also to be a righteous man. In other words, evidence is the conduct that God approves of. In other words, he is to be a man who knows and obeys God's word, who does good, and he is committed to the conduct that God desires of him. This is why Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 15 through 16. Timothy, take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Timothy was not only to pay attention to his teaching, the dispensing of the word of God, that he be faithful to that, but also the example of obedience. Beloved elders are to be theologians. Elders are to be theologians who know God and His Word and who apply the Word of God, who think deeply about the things of God. They're devoted to the Word of God in this way. And listen, there's always a danger. There's always a danger of getting caught up as leaders or elders in other very important matters that that are very important to the life of the church, but they're secondary when it comes to our main ministry, which is the ministry of the Word and prayer. Or to water down the truth when opposition or attacks come. To water it down and not cling to the Word of God in fear of people's opposition or pushing back. But... Holding fast the word means that you stand firm in your devotion to the word of God and you stand firm regardless of the cost or attacks that come upon you as a minister of the word of God. That be public or private from house to house. So we must not allow other things to take over the main thing as pastors and shepherds and overseers. This is why in Acts chapter 2, a text that you're very familiar with, when the apostles were confronted with some physical needs in the early church, what did they do um, when those needs were, were presented to them that were good needs, the caring of widows that were being neglected? What did they do? They appointed godly, qualified men, competent to focus on these physical needs, so that they, Acts chapter 6, verse 4, might devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. So what was the solution? Chuck the word of God to care for those physical needs? No. To neglect the physical needs that were very legitimate needs of the flock? No. It was to delegate, to pass on those tasks to others in the body who are gifted and capable and competent to meet those needs or facilitate those needs. That's why I'm so thankful for the last three, three and a half years of our, for our deacons who have been men who have just freed us up as elders to be able to focus on the ministry of the word and prayer and imparting the truth to other people in the flock, facilitating service of physical needs in the church behind the scenes, leading by example and encouraging others to be about meeting those needs so that elders can focus on their main task, the ministry of the word and prayer, and be devoted to that. 
Now, I want you to notice in verse 9 how he describes the word that elders are to be devoted to, that he is to hold on, hold fast to continually. Look at verse 9. He says that they are to hold fast to the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, or literally, listen to this, the according to the teaching faithful word. The emphasis is on the according to the teaching faithful word. That is what makes it faithful is that it is according to the teaching or consistent with the particular teaching passed down to us by Jesus and the apostles. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. That faithful word that is consistent with the apostolic teaching. In contrast to the false teaching of the false teachers that we're going to see in verses 10 through 16. False teachers who according to chapter 1 verse 11 are teaching things that they should not teach. For the sake of sordid gain. In contrast, the elder, the faithful elders to be devoted to the word, but the faithful word that has been passed down to them by Jesus and the apostles, the according to the teaching faithful word. Listen, no elder or preacher of the word of God or imparter of the truth creates his own message or should be creating his own message. He stands in a long line of true preachers who have been preaching the word of God from generation to generation, beloved. And in every generation, every man is accountable to God for how he dispenses God's truth. He's accountable to God. There's one audience, and that is God who has given his word, and he wants his word to to be served unadulterated, uncorrupted, untainted. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, A young pastor, elder, overseer. Timothy, be diligent. There's the hard work, maximum effort. Be continually diligent to present yourself approved to God. There's the audience. The audience is God who gave his word. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. The NIV puts 2 Timothy 2.15 this way. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman, it's hard work, who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. In other words, Timothy, if you are going to minister faithfully, you must rightly interpret the word of God. And this requires work and this requires skill. Skill. In fact, those words handling accurately can be translated or understood as cutting it straight. Cut it straight, Timothy, and thus be faithful and approved unto God. Cut it straight. That terminology was used of a, of a guide cutting a straight path or of a priest who, who was to cut the animal exactly according to God's specific instructions that that sacrifice would be acceptable to God. He was to cut it exactly as God had given specific instructions. I remember in grammar school being taught how to use scissors by cutting along zigzag lines or straight lines, right? And to the extent that, that you would cut along those lines, your project would be successful and the, and the teacher would, would give you the thumbs up, right? The approval. That's the idea, beloved. The elder is to be one who is approved before God because he cuts the word straight. He rightly interprets the word of God. 
And as we're faithful as shepherds to the Lord and to interpret the word of God correctly and passing it on to the flock, if the truth is applied, it will bear fruit in your life. It will, but it must be applied too. There should never be anyone who gets into the pulpit, whether it's me or anyone, and preaches something foreign to your ears. And put it in perspective. I'm talking about error, heresy, something not in line with cardinal Christian doctrine as you have understood it for many years in a faithful pulpit like this. You must watch out for that. Because the job of the pastor, elder, overseer is to serve the meal as God gave it undisturbed. Amen? Undisturbed. Unadulterated. And so this requires, beloved, that elders be men of the book, devoted to the word of God, handling it accurately, cutting it straight. Secondly, it also requires that the shepherd be competent in the word. Not only devoted in the word, or to the word, but competent in the word. Look at verse 9. Holding fast continually or devoted to the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. And here's a purpose clause. This is why he must be, this is what he must be able to do so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict He must be able, that word is the word dunitas, which often is translated power. But the idea here is is he must have the ability. He must be efficient, equipped, or competent. Competent. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 2 says that he must be able to teach, which has the idea of skilled or, or capable, of efficient, or of competent. So the elder is not just to be, um, to be devoted to the word of God, but he is to be able or competent to handle the word effectively and skillfully, to wield the sword in, the, in a way that bears fruit in the lives of God's people and that glorifies God. He is to be able to do that. And notice, he's able to, he's, he must be able to do two things primarily. First, according to verse 9, positively, he must be able or competent to exhort in sound doctrine. Exhort means to call from alongside. Is the word from which we get uh, the word parakaleo. Depending on the context, it can mean to encourage or to exhort. Elders are to be competent to encourage or to exhort. Notice, in sound doctrine. In sound doctrine. He's to be able to instruct. This is the elder's beloved primary thing that he should be able to do. To come alongside a people publicly, privately, in various contexts, to encourage and exhort people by means of the word of God, to minister the word of God to them. That is why I love the way the apostles put it in Acts chapter 6 verse 4, the ministry of the word and prayer. Because it's bigger than just public preaching, it's public and private, the impartation and the ministry of the word to people, life on life, personally and publicly. He is to be able to administer the word in an efficient and skillful manner. And he is to exhort in sound doctrine. What does that mean? Healthy teaching. Sound means healthy. Doctrine means teaching or instruction. He is to be a man who imparts healthy teaching to the flock. Why is this so important? Why is it so important? Well, I think when we think about the physical realm, 
We might use an illustration to make the point of why this is so important, even, uh, even more so in the spiritual realm. I mean, what happens when you make it a habit in your life? Maybe as you think back of your own life journey, right? What happens when you make it a habit to eat lots of junk food for a long period of time? What happens? You become sluggish, right? I get sluggish. I lack energy. I start getting lethargic, complacent, maybe even lazy. I mean, nothing wrong with enjoying some of the finer things of life, right? I love Twinkies. They're a weakness of mine. And even more so, my wife knows I I love ice cream. I hate the nights that we have ice cream socials here because I have to control myself, right? I love the finer things of life and nothing wrong with enjoying those things. God has given them to us so we can enjoy them. But you and I know that if we're out of control with those things, eventually you begin to feel it in your body. And might I dare to say to see it in our shape, right? It is so in the spiritual realm, beloved. Christians need healthy spiritual food and they need to apply it that they might be spiritually healthy. It is both expository preaching, if you will, and expository listening by you so that you are deliberate and purposeful in applying the word of God to your life. It is both. Secondly, not only are elders to be competent to instruct in the word, but also look at verse 9. They are to be competent to refute those who contradict. To refute those who contradict. Not only is he to be able to instruct the sheep, but also, listen, to guard and protect the sheep. He says to refute, which is a strong, corrective kind of word. It means to reprove, to expose and correct erroneous thinking. I like this translation, to prove by demonstration of the truth. The elder must be able to show where the error lies and where the dangers lurk to somebody and show them and then give them evidence for believing what they believe from the word of God so that they may be established in the faith, that particular person. He is to be able to show and demonstrate by the truth of the word of God. Titus was needed to be do that with these believers on the island of Crete. Chapter 1, verse 13, he tells him, Titus, reprove them, meaning the false teachers, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, Titus. Chapter 2, verse 15, of uh, here in our book, he tells uh, Titus, these things, the various um, uh, instructions that he's given to the various members of the church, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let no one disregard you, Titus. Who is he to refute or reprove? Look at verse 9. Those who contradict. Those who oppose the truth. Those who speak against the truth of the word of God as revealed by God himself. And there will always be those who speak against the truth, beloved. Either arising from within the church or entering from without. Paul, in writing to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 31, spoke of this. He said, I know that after my departure, says Paul to these Ephesian elders, savage wolves will come in among you. They will come in to the flock, not sparing the flock. So they're going to come in from without, from the outside. And then he says, and from among your own selves. Men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore... Be on the alert. Be diligent. Be a careful watchman who's out there looking at the sheepfold 
and where the fences are to make sure that there are no false uh, teachers coming into the sheepfold to harm the sheep. Be vigilant, watchful, he says to the Ephesian elders. Because there will always be those, beloved, who are going to come in from without and arise from within, teaching things that contradict the truth of the Word of God. Now listen, we can think of this opposition from more of an extreme perspective. False teachers, people who are heretical or whatever. But also there's the ongoing task of, of Christians who also need to be corrected lovingly. And maybe they're the way that they, they think in their, in their thinking patterns or their particular beliefs or the way that they may apply the word of God. And so the elder shepherd is to lovingly in the truth be able to come effectively and skillfully open up the scriptures with people in the body and show them where the error lies in their thinking and lovingly show them, hey, brother, sister, the way that you're thinking about that is not, is not correct. Let me show you what God's word says about that. And this is what it would look like. And these are the practical implications of that. See, the elder must be able to do that as well. Not just speak, uh, um, going against heresy and protecting the flock from heresy and false teaching, but also from incorrect thinking. Isn't that what the ongoing ministry of the word does in our lives? It's correcting our thinking patterns, our belief systems. That eventually, if we don't correct those thinking patterns, they show themselves in the way that we live. Sound doctrine leads to sound living, right? So elders must be competent to doing that. John Calvin understood the double nature of the elder's responsibility to instruct and protect. And he wrote this, quote, A pastor needs two voices, one for gathering the sheep and the other for driving wolves and thieves away. The scripture supplies him with the means of doing both. And he who has been rightly instructed in it, meaning in the word of God, will be able both to rule those who are teachable and to refute the enemies of the truth, end quote. What a great quote, huh? Must be able to instruct and correct and protect the faithful shepherd. Beloved, this is why sound biblical preaching and teaching publicly or privately is essential because of the impending danger of false teaching in the church. Because of that, because of opposition rising from within and coming in from without, we must have preaching. Listen to me. We must have preaching, yes, that comforts and informs and encourages, but we also must have preaching that confronts and corrects and convicts. You need both. Both. And some people don't like the latter very much. If preaching doesn't have that, public or private, and the impartation of the truth doesn't have that, then it's not biblical preaching that's going to bear fruit in your life. And in case you think me kind of harsh or, man, you're kind of overstating your case, Pastor, let me ask you this concerning our deadly enemy, sin. Is sin deceptive? Is sin subtle? Yes. Is sin continuing to harass you in your life? Is sin relentless in his desire to, in its desire to have dominance over your life? Yes, 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 yes. Does sin ever, ever, ever give up? No, it does not give up. It is relentless. It is destructive. It is harmful. And it is for some of you who have not turned from your sins and put your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. It is damning. Sin is damning, destructive, subtly deceptive harmful and there is a tendency in all of us beloved to 
subtly doze off and allow sin to dull our senses and to deceive us and for our hearts to become hardened to the truth of the Word of God. And so what do you need? You need biblical preaching, public and private, and the impartation of the truth, public and private, that the Spirit can use to prick our hearts and our consciences so that we don't doze off and become comfortable with our sin. Confrontational, corrective preaching is important because the Word of God, beloved, must, like a skillful surgeon, expose our sin. And it will cut us. And it will hurt us. But it is necessary, isn't it? In order that true healing may come to our lives. Think about it. Suppose that a doctor diagnosed you with a malignant tumor. Your doctor. Sir, you have a malignant tumor. We need to get in there. We're going to need to operate to cut you to get that tumor out. And you said, no, 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 sir, sir. No way. There's no way that I'm going to let you do that. It's going to hurt too much. Don't open me up. Don't operate. I don't like you cutting me. I don't like anybody touching me that way. Period. Would you do that? And leave that malignant tumor in there? The answer is no, right? No. You must let him operate. You understand that cutting is necessary for your good. It is necessary that he cuts you in order that you may be ultimately healed, right? That is utterly necessary. Same in the spiritual realm, beloved. The Word of God cuts. The Word of God convicts. The Word of God does confront our sin. But it is a good place to be so that we could turn from our sin, see it and turn from it and confess it to the Lord and be able to grow and be renewed in the spirit of our minds, right? I've heard people say, and I'm tired of hearing people say, you know, this type of confrontational preaching, this is very unloving. This is very divisive. I would counter and say, not so. I would say this type of preaching is very loving because it is committed to defending the truth and for your own good. It is not hateful, but very loving. Because what shepherd or shepherds want to see the sheep struggling and destroying themselves and wallowing in their sin? They need to have that word of God open to them so that they may see their sin and there may come healing. Amen? That's what we desire, beloved. And faithful shepherds are concerned with the health of the flock to both instruct and guard the truth and protect the sheep because your lives are at stake, beloved. Your souls are at stake. So we must be faithful to both to instruct and to reprove, to impart the truth of God in an encouraging way and to confront with the truth of the Word of God. So faithful shepherds, who are to lead in the church, are to be devoted to the Word and competent in the Word. Now, in our remaining time, in light of what this passage says, and in light of the parallel passage of 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, which says that elders are to be able to teach, I would propose the following three implications, okay? Following three implications. Elders are men of the book who delight in the book, who desire to instruct from the book and dare to defend the book. If we were to define the qualification of able to teach, it means at least those three things by way of implication for our lives. 
especially for those of you men who aspire to the office of an overseer. You must delight in the book. You must desire to instruct from the book. And you must dare to defend the book. Let me take each of those one at a time. They delight in the Bible. Elders delight in the book. And the reason why I start with delight and put it this way is because elders must be men who delight in knowing God and His Word first and foremost personally. They must be those who are continually tasting to see that the Lord is good from His own Word. That He is good. They long to know the Bible. And they long to know the Bible because they long to know the God of the Bible. And let me say this. They don't study the Word because they want to tell others how much they know. Or because they want to, they find it intellectually stimulating to read the Bible. And it's a, just a book, bunch of, a bunch of morals and great, beautiful things to impart to other people that have no bearing upon their lives. No, they want to impart the truth of the word of God and, or study it because of the discovery of God himself. They want to know God. They, knowing about God is so satisfying to them, if I can put it that way. Elders are men who know God and His Word. Listen, we can't, as elders, teach people about a God whom we don't delight in and know ourselves. We just can't. Secondly, not only do they delight in the Bible, but they desire to instruct from the Bible. They desire to instruct from the Bible. Because they delight in and know God and His Word, they want and long to teach others for the glory of God, and they long to, to encourage people and edify the flock. Asking them to teach, listen, is not a chore. It is not consistently burdensome. It is not drudgery. It isn't like pulling teeth to ask elders to teach the Word of God publicly or privately. Opportunities to teach are not forced or coerced, but they are desirable and they run to those opportunities even if they know that they are not sufficient or adequate for these things. They know God in His truth and from the overflow of the well of their own hearts as they engage in, in intimacy with God and His Word, they long to impart this fresh water that will freshen the flock of God and give them life for His glory, for God's glory. Listen, search your heart today. Search your heart, men. For, but all of us, why do you desire to teach men? Brothers, why do you desire to teach? Do you desire to teach because it brings you attention? Because of, it achieves you some elite status in the church? Because um, you want to arrogantly debate everyone around you and tell everyone what you know and prove them just how much they don't know? The faithful shepherd desires to instruct from the word of God, not for those reasons, but because he wants to see God glorified in the lives of God's people and people drawn to Jesus. To be conformed to the image of Jesus. They long to see people conformed into the image of Christ. They long to see people walking according to Jesus' steps. They long to see their brethren serving one another in application of the word of God. They long to see people desire to know God and to worship God. That's why they want to teach and impart truth. So this is a man who desires to communicate the word of God. Now I want us to pause here before going to the third implication. Okay? To pause here for a moment and ask a couple of important questions. 
How do we know that a man who desires, just because he desires to teach the Bible, is he capable? Is he skilled? Is he, is he gifted? How do we know that? After all, I mean, anyone can pronounce themselves a teacher by their own standards, right? A self-acclaimed teacher of the church. We have those guys on television, some of them, by the way, who have thousands of followers sitting under them. Most of those people are spiritually dead people, and they're not preaching the gospel to them. But yet, one day, they got up and they announced themselves, I'm a great teacher. I'm just going to get up and, get and promise people certain things, and they're going to follow me in the thousands. In the thousands. Who affirmed them? Who listened to them? Who tested their teaching in accordance with the word of God and told them you ought to be doing what you are doing? I would sit in front of some of those guys and say, you ought not to be teaching the Bible, but go sit and learn. First, some of you be saved. Be saved. Well, in answer to that question of how do we know, I think this is where the church comes in, right? Where the church comes in. And don't under, uh, underestimate the importance of the church, the bride of Jesus, because the, this question really is an issue of affirmation and fruitfulness. There's the issue of affirmation. First of all, ask yourself, have others affirmed my ability to teach, such as other teachers in the church or especially pastors, elders, overseers? What feedback have you received of your teaching, whether public or private? And when you receive it, are you humble? How do you respond? Are you teachable? Or you think you're all that already? You don't need to grow or work on it? How do you respond to the feedback? Is there affirmation when you teach where people are just encouraged? Say, Brother, man, thank you so much for sharing that. I'm so encouraged. Every time you teach or you share the, the word, it seems like you really encourage me. You're really imparting things that really allow me to continue to grow in my Christian life. I just want to thank you. Are people affirming? What about fruitfulness? Ask yourself the issue of not only of affirmation, but fruitfulness. I love how Mark Dever puts it. Have I instructed others with consistent, fruitful, and notable effect? Is there consistent, fruitful, and notable effect from your teaching? Are people encouraged, moved, convicted, repenting of their sin as they're exposed to your teaching so that they're driven to want to walk with Jesus all the more? Everyone can lay an egg once in a while, right? Say, amen, you've done it too, brother, right? I know I have. I know I have. But may it not be the norm, right? If you're able to teach, that should not be the norm. People should be built up when you teach. There should be an edificational fruitfulness that is there. Well, pastor, I don't really know how to evaluate and assess that because I haven't preached from the main pulpit. Well, listen, it's not just in the main pulpit that teaching takes place, right? Right? There are many venues. Yes, the main pulpit, but teaching takes place in a variety of venues. Not just the main pulpit. Fellowship groups, small groups, home groups, men's small groups, women's small groups, men's ministries, women's ministries. The Word of God is being imparted continually, informally and formally. The youth, we have teachers in there who are teaching our student ministries, our youth. There are teachers in the children's ministries teaching little tykes all the way up to fifth graders. There are evangelism ministries and care ministries in our church where people are imparting the word of God as if those venues matter as well. So what has been the fruit there in those contexts if the Lord has given you opportunities? What has been the feedback that you've received by way of affirmation from others and especially leaders who are out looking out for your soul and looking to identify new teachers in the church? 
Not everybody who desires to communicate the Word of God, beloved, should be teaching the Word of God. You must be gifted to teach. And yes, there are different levels of gifting. Yes, not better, some better than others, but different levels and variations of teachers. Yes, but he must be able to teach, to impart the Word of God in a fruitful, edificational manner, effectively, skillfully. So now thirdly, the third final practical implication, elders must be able to defend the Bible. They must be able to defend the Bible. They delight in the Bible. They desire to teach the Bible. And they must be able to defend the Bible. That's what Titus 1.9 just taught us. This requires that the man not just have a general knowledge of the contents of the Bible. Listen to me clearly. This doesn't just mean that you know a lot of Bible verses or you know a lot of texts in the Bible or you know all the, the stories from the time that you were a little guy in, in, in Sunday school and that's all you, ever, you, you know to this day. This means that beyond that, you understand how the Bible and its contents fits together in its cohesive whole. And not only that, but this man understands doctrine and what accords with sound doctrine and is able to tell falsehood from truth. What is not real from reality. This does not mean that he has perfect knowledge. He'll always have all the answers to every debated issue. But listen, it does mean at the very least that this man is so equipped that he understands where the theological doctrinal fence lines exist, if you will. So that when he sees the sheep going outside of that, he says, nah, get back in here. This is the truth. Or when he sees somebody out of line, he's able to come and show from the truth of the word of God. This is what the truth is. Don't go outside of those doctrines. This is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And this is how the word of God supports those doctrines. The theological fence lines that we must not go beyond. Lest we go beyond what stands written in the word of God. He must be equipped to do that. And I would say especially with regards to core cardinal gospel doctrine. He must know the truth and be able to distinguish falsehood from the truth. Because, beloved, listen, no man can protect a sheepfold from wolves or from doctrinal error if you don't know the truth yourself. If you're not capable yourself, if you're not equipped in the word. And so, therefore, eldership is not for everybody. You must know where the dangers lurk if you are to warn the sheep. And bring the word of God to bear upon those issues that they're struggling with and seeing. Elders are men of the book. Who delight in the book. That desire to communicate the word of God. For God's glory and the good of the sheep. And they are there and capable of defending the truth. They defend the truth. Listen beloved, this is so important, isn't it? These qualifications, including this qualification of being a man who is a man of the book for elders, the men who are to lead in the church. This is important, again, for us who are current elders. I must be this kind of man who is a man of the book, sold out for the word of God in both teaching and example. I know you expect that of me. You should expect that of your elders as well. All of us. This is first and foremost um, pricks us in the heart because we must be confronted with these things. This is who we must be first and foremost. Secondly, for those of you who aspire to the office of an overseer, or an elder, or a pastor, this is who you must be. And no title that is ever given to you is going to all of a sudden transform you into a faithful shepherd. You must be a faithful shepherd first and 
Eldership is merely affirming you to a role that you've already been fleshing out. Thirdly, for the sake of you as a church, that you might develop convictions about these things from the Word of God and what your elders ought to look like and what your elders ought to be doing in the church for the glory of God. So that fourthly, we as a church would be praying for our current elders and that we would be praying for future elders in the church. So that fifthly, as we're praying for those things and living those things out, we are a powerful witness to a lost world, right? And we put the gospel on display, beloved, in the way that we lead in the church as qualified godly men. Amen? Well, in closing, I want to read an excerpt from John Wesley. He was a pastor theologian who lived from 1703 to 1791. Some of you are familiar with him. And he wrote this little excerpt titled, A Man of One Book. A Man of One Book. It's in his preface to sermons. Listen to this. To candid, reasonable men, I am not afraid to lay open what have been the inmost thoughts of my heart. I have thought I am a creature of a day, passing through life as an arrow through the air. I am a spirit come from God and returning to God, just hovering over the great gulf, till a few moments hence I am no more seen. I drop into an unchangeable eternity. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. How to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach me the way. For this very end he came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be homo unius libri, a man of one book. Here then I am, far from the busy ways of men. I sit down alone. Only God is here. In his presence I open, I read his book. For this end, to find the way to heaven. Is there a doubt concerning the meaning of what I read? Does anyone, does anything appear dark or intricate? I lift up to my, uh, my heart to the Father of light. Lord, is it not thy word? If any man lacks, lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Thou givest liberally and abradest not. Thou hast said, if any be willing to do thy will, he shall know. I am willing to do. Let me know thy will, O Lord. I then search after and consider parallel passages of Scripture, comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. I meditate thereon with all the attention and earnestness of which my mind is capable on these truths. If any doubt still remains, I consult those who are experienced in the things of God, and then the writings whereby being dead, they still speak. And what I thus learn, that I teach. May the Lord help us to be those types of men men of the book, and may the Lord help us to be a congregation full of people of the book. Amen, beloved? Father, help us to be people of the book because your word reveals you in your infinite glory and majesty and we delight in the God of the word. Father, help us as current elders, beginning with me, that we would be men of the book devoted to the truth of your word, delighting in you, finding sweet times of intimacy with you, Lord, that we would be able to impart your truth to the flock. Father, I pray for a great awakening and a great revival in those men who would desire in the future to be elders. Father, help us to be a congregation full of people of the book who delight in your word, 
who desire to impart the truth of your word to one another and who dare to defend your truth so that from those people and those men in particular, there would surface men who are men of the book, men who love you, men who delight in you, men who want to defend your truth in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. Oh, Father, do a great work in the lives of many men in this congregation to rise and one day shepherd your church faithfully according to your book according to your word, faithful, handling accurately your truth. And Father, help us to be a congregation that prays for these things, that upholds these things, so that we might display the gospel to a wicked and perverse generation that desperately needs to see the transforming power of the message of Christ upon real lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.